Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. Hello and welcome to The Top Story, a podcast with the headlines of the day from our correspondents from around the world. I'm Zhu Tianlu. Coming up, Russia's Black Sea Fleet commander, who Ukraine said it killed in the missile attack last week, has appeared in a video released by Moscow. Israel's tourism minister has traveled to Saudi Arabia to attend a UN conference. And the United Nations General Assembly has wrapped up its 78th session in New York after days of discussions aiming at rebuilding trust and promoting global unity. We begin in Europe. The commander of Russia's Black Sea Fleet, Admiral Viktor Sokolov, has been seen on a video conference with Russian defense officials. Kiev had claimed Sokolov was killed in a missile strike last Friday. Dasha Chenishova has more details from Moscow. Russia's defense ministry has shown the commander of the Black Sea Fleet attending the ministry's video conference on Tuesday. When asked about Admiral Viktor Sokolov, the Kremlin did not comment, saying it had no report regarding the issue from the defense ministry. The Russian Ministry of Defense said it shot down five Ukrainian missiles last Friday, but the historic building of the fleet headquarters caught fire. Russia reported one serviceman was missing as a result of the attack. In Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu claimed Tuesday that to date this month Russian forces have killed more than 17,000 Ukrainian soldiers and destroyed 2,700 pieces of military equipment. Shoigu also accused the U.S. and its allies of taking new steps to contain Russia and China in the international arena. Commenting on the arrival of American Abrams battle tanks to Ukraine, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Paskov acknowledged they are serious weapons, but said Western-supplied equipment will not change the course of Russia's special military operation. That was Dasha Chenishova on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Now we move on to Asia. The first Saudi ambassador to Palestine has arrived in the West Bank and met Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Naif bin Bandar al-Sudari says Riyadh hopes to strengthen relations in all fields with Palestine. The Palestinian president says the appointment of the Saudi ambassador will strengthen bilateral ties. Meanwhile, Israeli tourism minister Haim Katz has travelled to Saudi Arabia to attend a UN tourism conference. It's the first time that an Israeli cabinet member is heading an official delegation to Riyadh. Akram al-Sadri is in Gaza with more details. The uh, Saudi delegation that came to Gaza is a political delegation. The Palestinian Authority in particular sees that movement as a movement, or as a move to try to justify the coming compromises when it comes to the recognition of Israel and when it comes to the normalized relationships with Israel. The Palestinian leadership has been actively engaging in talks, not only with the Saudis, but with also some other regional powers and international powers for the sake of making sure that the Palestinians and the Palestinian Authority would benefit something out of that process that is being finalized in the meantime between Saudi Arabia and Israel. They want the Saudis to continue and resume the generous support they were providing for the infrastructure in Gaza. And this new approach by the Palestinian Authority led eventually to that ambassador coming to 
the uh, President Mahmoud Abbas and preparing for the resumption of the sub, uh, Saudi political support for the Palestinians. With the Saudi ambassador coming to Ramallah and being nominated also as a general consulate in Jerusalem, that is indicative of the nature of the uh, changes that are going to take place. Recognition is coming. Final steps are being taken now in Ramallah, Tel Aviv and Riyadh. That was Alkram al Sadri reporting. The Armenian Health Ministry says 125 people are known to have died in Monday's explosion and fire at a fuel depot in the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region. The bodies of the victims have been transported to Armenia. According to the International Committee of the Red Cross, hundreds of others were burnt in the blast. It remains a challenge to deliver medical assistance to this many victims. Meanwhile, the exodus for Karabakh Armenians continues. The Armenian government says more than 20 8,000 people have crossed into Armenia. Last week, Azerbaijani troops launched a special operation to take control of the region. Jim Spellman reports. By car and on foot, ethnic Armenians have been streaming across the Armenian border after Azerbaijani troops appear to have taken control of the contested Nagorno-Karabakh region. It was a nightmare. There were no words to describe. The village was heavily shelled. Almost no one is left in the village. Most people have been evacuated. And we are now here. The region has seen clashes dating back to the dissolution of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. Last week, Azerbaijani troops appear to have taken control of the region after carrying out a military operation. Russia brokered a ceasefire that went into effect last Wednesday. Russian peacekeepers remain on the ground. Last week at the UN, China called for negotiations and a peaceful resolution to the crisis. Armenia and Azerbaijan are neighbors that cannot be moved away from each other. Resolving disputes through dialogue and consultation serves the fundamental interests of the two countries and is conducive to jointly safeguarding regional peace and stability. The U.S. is calling for an international mission to Nagorno-Karabakh to ensure stability. That was Jim Spellman on the Nagorno-Karabakh tensions. Finally, in North America, Joe Biden has become the first sitting U.S. president to join the picket line in the middle of the labor dispute. Biden made the stop while in Michigan as a nearly two-week work stoppage affects the nation's three largest automakers. Nathan King has more in Washington, D.C. Biden's message in Michigan is that the auto workers' executives have done very well as the car industry has been showing record profits. And it's time for the assembly line workers and others to share in those profits. They gave up so much in the wake of the financial crisis and the bailout of the car industry. Now, he says, it's the workers' turn. You deserve the significant raise you need and other benefits. Let's get it! Let's get back who we lost, okay? Asked whether he is supporting the 40% increases over several years demanded by the unions, he answered yes. But there are other issues too. The tiering of workers that make entry-level workers paid far less than those with more experience. They want cost of living adjustments because of inflation and more job security too. Biden is calling for fairness in an auto industry that is going to transform itself over the coming years as it moves from gas-powered engines to electric vehicles. 
The strike is nearly two weeks old, and while Biden isn't directly intervening in the negotiations, which are showing some progress, especially with car maker Ford, uh, he is putting his weight behind the workers. Working class votes are very important in the election next year. Michigan was lost in 2016 to the Democrats, to Donald Trump. They hope they can gain more of these workers back. And with that in mind, the presidential election team will be looking very closely at former president and presidential contender this time, Donald Trump's visit, which is set for this week to Michigan. He too will be meeting with auto workers. Uh, his likely message is that Biden's investment into green energy and electric vehicles is actually going to do more harm to auto workers than anything else. As we know, electric vehicles require far less people to put them together. The industry may be battling for now, but it also may have to battle for the future. That was Nathan King on the U.S. auto strike. Staying in America, the U.S. Senate has released a short-term funding bill to stop the government from shutting down in just five days. Tuesday's move was to keep money flowing until November the 7th to give Congress more time to work out a larger agreement. The bill, negotiated between leaders of the Democratic majority and Republican minority, includes $4.5 billion in aid to Ukraine and $6 billion in emergency FEMA funding for disaster relief. The Republican-controlled House of Representatives, however, planned to push along with its own partisan bill that was unlikely to win support in the Democratic majority Senate. Owen Faircloth has more. They worked through the weekend. We're making an order, consideration of four bills. And now U.S. lawmakers are racing against time working on legislation aimed at keeping critical government agencies funded as a government shutdown looms. Kevin McCarthy, the leading Republican in Congress, is under pressure to stop a shutdown by getting rebellious hardline Republicans set on trimming spending to fall in line. We will give an opportunity for Democrats on the floor to join with us to keep government open. And it's deja vu. The same Republican divisions led to the U.S. almost defaulting on its debts in June before Congress voted to raise spending limits and keep the government running through the summer. President Biden is urging his opponents to set aside their internal divisions that have triggered previous government shutdowns. Some ultra-conservative Republicans in the Freedom Caucus faction are opposing a short-term funding measure known as a continuing resolution. They want to hold out for spending cuts. Even some colleagues in that faction are now urging those rebels to stop. I can tell you that no Republican and no Democrat wants to see government shut down. If lawmakers are unable to agree on a continuing resolution, the federal government risks shutting down at midnight on September the 30th. That was Owen Faircloth reporting on the U.S. government shutdown. Tuesday marks the end of the 78th session of the UN General Assembly's high-level meetings that brought together world leaders at the international body's headquarters in New York. Karina Mitchell reports on some of the key goals and highlights of this year's general debate. The 78th session of the United Nations General Assembly opened against a backdrop of a world facing a host of geopolitical, economic and humanitarian crises. In his opening remarks, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres reiterated calls for a more modern UN, urging nations to unite, saying our world needs statesmanship, not gamesmanship and gridlock. The world has changed. Our institutions have not. We cannot effectively address problems as they are 
if institutions do not reflect the world as it is. The theme of the general debate this year was rebuilding trust and reigniting global solidarity, accelerating action on the 2030 agenda and its sustainable development goals with the aim of generating greater peace, prosperity, progress and sustainability for all. The conflict in Ukraine was high on the agenda. U.S. President Joe Biden made his case that the world must stand behind Ukraine, saying, quote, if we allow Ukraine to be carved up, is the independence of any nation secure? Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky appeared in person and accused Russia of weaponizing everything from food to energy. Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov forcefully denounced the U.S. and the West, saying they fuel conflict instead of promoting a true world order, but he barely mentioned Ukraine. Chinese Vice President Han Zheng made clear to the Assembly that a ceasefire and peace talks are the only way forward to end Russia-Ukraine tensions. On foreign policy, the vice president said China is committed to opening up itself wider to the world, but insisted on China's commitment to safeguarding its sovereign control. Han also called for global governance to be more just and equitable. Both the U.S. and China avoided harsh criticism of one another at a time of rising tensions. Biden said the U.S. seeks to manage competition between the two nations and avoid conflict. Climate was another major area of discussion as the world faced record-shattering heat, massive floods and raging wildfires this summer. Colombia's president warning that the climate crisis has exacerbated the number of climate refugees. He warned their numbers could reach 3 billion in the next 50 years. As this year's session concludes, it remains to be seen how many of the goals and pledges member nations follow through on. That as many worry whether the United Nations still holds the same cachet it once did in an ever more fragmented world. That was Karina Mitchell reporting. Before we go, the headlines again. Russia's Black Sea Fleet commander, who Ukraine said it killed in a missile attack last week, has appeared in a video released by Moscow. Israel's tourism minister has traveled to Saudi Arabia to attend a UN conference. And the United Nations General Assembly has wrapped up its 78th session in New York after days of discussions aiming to rebuild trust and promoting global unity. That's it for this edition of The Top Story, a podcast that brings you world headlines every weekday. For more news in politics, business, sports and culture, you can subscribe to The Beijing Hour, a one-hour podcast news magazine program. We welcome and appreciate all ratings and reviews. I'm Zhu Tianlu. Thank you for listening.